0: Welcome back to the next episode of Arbitral Insights, which will focus on the key updates to the 2020 LCIA arbitration rules. My name is Ben Love, and I'm with the international arbitration team at Reed Smith in New York. And it is my pleasure to be here with Paula Hodges QC, who is head of the Global Arbitration Practice at Herbert Smith and president of the LCIA, as well as overseeing the administration of cases brought under the LCIA rules in her role as president, Paula's day job entails acting as counsel in international arbitrations around the world with a particular focus on the energy and technology sectors. She was awarded the title of Queen's Council in 2014 in recognition of her advocacy skills. Paula, thank you very much for joining us today.
1: It's nice to be here, Ben. Thank you.
0: So the LCI rules were last amended in 2014, with changes like enabling electronic submissions, new provisions to increase efficiency, providing for an emergency arbitrator, and implementing standards of conduct for parties' legal representatives. And you've described the amendments that yielded this new version of the rules, which applies to arbitrations after October 1st, 2020, as a, and I quote, light touch. Why do you say that?
1: The reason for calling it a light touch, Ben, is the 2020 rules are not a complete rewrite and have not changed the overall framework of the LCIA rules. Rather, what we've sought to do was modernise a number of the provisions. So, for instance, we've finally done away with communication by fax and actually made electronic communication the default. We've also sought to clarify certain areas um, that had proved slightly problematic in practice and also that had been considered by the High Court in London and again raised some questions about how the rules operated in practice. So examples of that, and we can come back to these if you wish, are the fact that until the 2020 rules, we couldn't accept composite requests for arbitrations under more than one contract. There was also a little confusion on the part of the High Court as to whether parties could seek interim relief before a tribunal had been constituted. And hopefully we've clarified that now made it quite clear you can seek interim relief from the courts and can now issue composite requests. We've also sought to make express a number of powers that the arbitrators have always had, but we thought that it would be good to do this in a bid to encourage efficient and cost-effective administration of cases. We've also had to deal with a certain number of new regulations and developments, particularly in the data privacy sphere.
0: Okay. Well, let's get into some of those. And, and, and starting with the new provisions or the revised provisions on remote proceedings and electronic communications, I know that cost and efficiency were matters that the LCIA has sought to address well before COVID, but this more expansive movement toward remote hearings and electronic communications that you alluded to earlier Appears to be accelerated by the pandemic. And so, could you tell us a bit about how the amendments to Articles 4 and 19 address these concerns?
1: Yes, of course. And we were already updating the rules before the pandemic hit. And we were definitely moving in the direction of electronic communication. But we decided to make that the default. By the time, we got to publicising the rules in the summer because that is exactly what happened during 2020 with people having to communicate from remote locations all over the world. We also saw hearings very quickly move from being in person to remote or virtual hearings. So again, we decided to make it clear in the rules that tribunals can order and administer remote hearings. And I think we're the the first institution to have done that. So we were delighted to be in a position where we could capitalise on the rapid evolution of arbitration during the pandemic. And I think that was perhaps born out of necessity, but as you've rightly identified, it does help the drive towards efficiency, expedition and cost effective resolution of disputes. So by including these provisions in the 2020 rules, we're hoping it is going to be attractive to parties and will also encourage council and tribunals to try and use these provisions to make sure that we remain efficient and and cost-effective as we go forward. My own view is that certainly electronic communication throughout the arbitration will now be the new normal. As for hearings, my guess is that it will move to a hybrid where we have some in-person hearings, but perhaps with certain witnesses, clients dialing in from other locations on a far more regular basis than we used to see.
0: Yeah, so, so while you think parties will begin to prefer electronic filings for submissions, the preference for remote hearings might be a bit more muted if there's an opportunity for an in-person hearing.
1: I, I think that's right, Ben. I've done a number this year, and the clients have all expressed disappointment At not being in the room, particularly for merits hearings, I think procedural hearings are slightly different, but certainly for the merits hearings, clients would still like to be there. And certainly as counsel, I would far prefer to be in the same room as the tribunal and the witnesses I'm cross-examining.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. I think I share your view there. So while we're on a topic related to efficiency, let's talk a bit about the revised provisions on expedited procedures. So there are other amendments aimed at facilitating the expedition of proceedings, such as the amendments in Article 14, which provide arbitrators with new tools, such as the power to limit the length of written submissions, dispense with the final hearing, and manage the timing and organization of proceedings. What prompted those changes?
1: I wouldn't necessarily call them changes, Yes, they are a change in the sense that it's the first time we've included a list of powers that the arbitrators can utilise in order to ensure efficiency during arbitrations. But the discretion of the arbitrators has always, always been incredibly broad and we thought those powers were already there. But what we noticed in the last five years or so, as the LCIA has really internationalised, is that we have been appointing arbitrators from all over the world, over 50% of our arbitrators come from outside the UK now, and that the approach to procedure have begun to vary quite a bit. So whereas sort of true British-style arbitrator, particularly former judges or experienced QCs, would be very happy to take hold of the process and really drive it forward and not be afraid to uh, determine preliminary issues early on, even dispose of cases that are clearly meritless. We did notice that other arbitrators, uh, and I'm generalising here, but perhaps perhaps those coming from civil law backgrounds were far more focused on due process and perhaps didn't wish to force the pace as much as they could. So we decided to make these powers express in order to give arbitrators more confidence to take appropriate steps to move the proceedings along and also to deter dilatory parties who might be looking for excuses to delay the process.
0: So it's very interesting. And I believe the the wording of the new provision is written in such a way that this list is, is non-exhaustive. Is that a correct impression?
1: Oh, yes, absolutely. It's just giving some examples. And we thought these were perhaps some of the more important, more obvious ways in which arbitrators could seek to take control of the, the proceedings and make sure it, it's run at a, a fair pace.
0: And earlier, you know, when you were describing, kind of giving your high-level overview of the rules, you mentioned the ability to take composite requests. And so, so on that topic and on the topic of consolidation, which, I, you know, I think is also a topic that relates to efficiency in resolving disputes, especially as they've grown more complex over the years, could you describe the most important changes that the 2020 amendments Make with respect to consolidation and composite requests, which I, I believe are found in articles 1 and 22. And what are going to be the practical implications for users of LCA arbitration?
1: Yes, you're, you're, you're absolutely right, Ben, that this is linked to efficiency and flexibility. And in relation to both composite requests and consolidation, The underlying issue relates to situations where there are multiple parties on one or both sides and there are multiple contracts underlying the subject matter of the dispute. And it could be that you don't have the same parties to each of those related contracts. So we thought it was important to, first of all, enable parties to serve a composite request, which would commence arbitrations under more than one contract. Those tend to be related in some way in a, in any event. It could be in relation to a big infrastructure project in a developing jurisdiction where you have lead EPC contract, then various subcontracts, and the parties to each vary a little. And when parties take up the opportunity to serve a composite request, the arbitrations will start as separate proceedings, but of course there will then be an opportunity to consolidate those proceedings at a a later date if that is thought to be appropriate. And so following then into the new consolidation provisions, we already had quite sophisticated provisions allowing consolidation of arbitrations where the parties were the same, where there was the same or a compatible arbitration agreement, or where all the parties simply agreed to consolidate the proceedings. We've extended that act now so that the key change in relation to consolidation is that it can apply to related contracts too, so that you can have a situation where the parties differ But the arbitration agreements are the same or compatible, and those can still be consolidated, even if not all the parties consent to that. The other change is that the LCIA court can order consolidation on any of these bases before the tribunal is in place. So it's extended the power of the court, again, to make sure that we're as efficient as possible and bring the proceedings together so that they're run as one. But as early as, as we can, we've also added the possibility where parties don't actually want consolidation or it's not appropriate for some reason for proceedings to be run concurrently so that the arbitrators would then of necessity be the same, but they would run the proceedings in parallel.
0: And to change topics here, Article 14a addresses the the conduct and role of tribunal secretaries. And this is a new provision in the LCIA rules. And I'm wondering what led the LCIA to include this provision and what is the aim of the provision?
1: Well, as you know, Ben, um, tribunal secretaries has been quite a hot topic over the last five years. It started in controversy with parties, council, institutions complaining that certain arbitrators were using tribunal secretaries for more than administrative help during the arbitration and were actually instructing their tribunal secretaries to draft all or part of awards, which was, of course, a step too far and, and we saw initially institutions like the ICC really discouraging the appointment of tribunal secretaries at all. I think we've moved on from that now and people do recognise the value of tribunal secretaries to tribunals, especially in big complex cases, so that they can assist with the administration of the proceedings and help with certain delegated tasks not writing awards, but lots of other things. I think it's also important for the development of young arbitration practitioners. Uh, And so there are lots of good reasons to have tribunal secretaries. And at the LCIA, we thought the key thing is that the retainment of a tribunal secretary is transparent and that parties know exactly what is happening. So we decided to put provisions into the 2020 rules so that there is a framework around the instruction of tribunal secretaries, making it clear that they also have duties of independence, impartiality, confidentiality. And and so what we hope we've done is, is enabled The appropriate use of tribunal secretaries for the benefit of arbitrators, for parties, actually, because uh, I think secretaries help keep proceedings moving at a good pace, but also for the benefit and experience of the secretaries themselves.
0: And so on another hot topic at the moment, let's talk a bit about data protection and the data security protocols that are addressed in Article 30A. Could you provide some background to this amendment and what prompted it?
1: Yes, I think from the LCIA perspective, this was really triggered by the regulations in Europe, the, the GTPR, which are quite far-reaching Regulations dealing with data privacy. And of course, everyone involved in handling private information about individuals within Europe is subject to those regulations. But what we found was that certain parties, arbitrators from other parts of the world outside of Europe, did not think that they were necessarily bound by the regulations. But of course, if the seat is within Europe, one of the parties, one of the council, one of the arbitrators is European, then these regulations bite. And then we've seen similar regulations pop up in all different places. We're also very conscious of cybersecurity. So we decided to put provisions into the rules to again provide a framework to enable tribunals and parties to address this issue at the outset of the arbitration and then to make sure that people do realize that they are obliged to take steps to make sure they protect private information and only use it to the extent that is absolutely necessary during the arbitration.
0: Yeah, no, I know this has been a a difficult issue for tribunals, especially, and and practitioners who have been operating in a certain way for the past couple of decades to all of a sudden have an entirely new set of regulations governing the exchange of information. So it seems like it would be very helpful to have institutional rules like this, ensuring that this is an issue that gets addressed in future proceedings. So I think that covers most of the topics that I was going to address. Is there anything else that you would want to highlight about the new rules, Paula? Well, there
1: is one other provision I'll just mention briefly, Ben, because it is one of my personal favorites and one that I was very keen to include. And that is the new provision in Article 22.18, which relates to Early determination and this enables tribunals to dispose of claims that are manifestly without merit or for which they manifestly lack jurisdiction early on in the proceedings rather than going right the way through the whole arbitral procedure and only deciding it at a full merits hearing at the end. I confess that this keenness I had to introduce this provision probably comes from the fact that I am a a lawyer from the common law background where we have summary judgment and summary dismissal. But I, I was very keen that we gave tribunals and indeed parties the option to take advantage of this provision, not least because it responds to a complaint I've often heard from clients who say that although arbitration has many benefits, sometimes it can take a long time to get rid of a completely unsustainable case. And so this was introduced to try and encourage tribunals to dismiss uh, meritless claims very early on and perhaps even discourage parties from putting them forward in the first
0: place. Thank you very much, Paula. I think with that, we'll conclude our discussion on the 2020 amendments to the LCA rules. And I want to thank you, Paula, for your insight, which has been invaluable. And I want to thank our listeners for listening. They should feel free to reach out with any questions they might have. And I look forward to having you tune in for future episodes in the series. Thank you.
1: Arbitral Insights is a Reed Smith production. Our producer is Allie McArdle. For more information about Reed Smith's global international arbitration practice, email Jose Estigarraga at jia at readsmith.com. You can find our podcasts on Spotify, Apple, Google Play, Stitcher, Readsmith.com, and our social media accounts at Reed LLP on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. This podcast is provided for educational purposes. It does not constitute legal advice and is not intended to establish an attorney-client relationship, nor is it intended to suggest or establish standards of care applicable to particular lawyers in any given situation. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. All rights reserved.